that's something that in our culture we've kind of thrown away with our journey into rational materialism and ascendancy of allopathic medicine, which has wonders. Of course it does. I'm always saying that in class, that we don't want to throw that away either, but we don't want to throw the traditions. Having grown a herb, having used it in your home with your family, you're developing a living relationship with a plant that's been part of human history since forever. These days, we're made to feel as if being a herbalist is a little bit hippie. It's actually just part of being a human being, and it always has been in every culture. Welcome to Pacific Rim College Radio, a podcast sharing stories and wisdom from experts in the field of holistic wellness and sustainable living. I am your host, Todd Howard, coming to you from Ravenhill Herb Farm, a permaculture design campus of Pacific Rim College in Victoria, British Columbia. As the show's guests demonstrate, by doing small acts to embrace more mindful living, we can positively impact our communities. For this episode, I sat down with David Codwell, a highly respected herbalist. From his upbringing in the center of England with academically accomplished parents, David was poised for a great career in herbal medicine. But David took a circuitous path to herbal medicine, and the study of plants did not enter his life until well into adulthood. Now he's a standout in the field and has been a faculty member of the School of Western Herbal Medicine at Pacific Rim College for nearly a decade. Additionally, he is one of nine distinguished instructors in the renowned online herbalist programs at Pacific Rim College Online. David completed his studies in herbal medicine at the College of Phytotherapy in Southeast England and was awarded a Bachelor of Science with honors from the University of Wales. After graduating, David settled in Sussex, dividing his time between practice, clinic management, and teaching responsibilities at the college where he trained. He has taught for the Universities of Wales and East London and for the Discovering Herbal Medicine program run by Dr. Ann Walker. David is a member of the College of Practitioners in Phytotherapy, a professional body of herbalists established to champion the role and development of traditional herbal medicine in the modern world. David has a lifelong passion for wildlife, the outdoors, and the world's indigenous medicine systems, which has led to travel on five continents. In his practice, David takes a particular interest in women's health, fertility issue, and cancer care. If you have any interest in plants and plant-based medicine, you are sure to enjoy learning about how herbal medicine blossomed within this well-respected herbalist. It's good to see you, David. Thanks for coming on the show. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah. You have been on the faculty at Pacific Rim College in the School of Western Herbal Medicine for, what, a decade? Almost, yeah. So I, I arrived in 2011, yeah. So I guess just gone past, well, coming up to nine years. It was kind of summer 2011. All right. How did herbal medicine come into your life? Quite, quite um, gradually, I would say, is the answer to that. So, you know, I... It wasn't a familiar thing in our house when I, when I was a kid. And I had an interest in, in it as a teenager, so not as a young child. So my interest gradually fanned really from there. For, so I left home at 18 and, and never lived home after that. I went off to college and, and did various other things. And it, it, it was only in my 30s that I really, really took an active interest in herbal medicine and, and started... Um, 
growing a few things and reading books and I never imagined that, that well, I didn't know there was such a thing really as a herbalist till, till my um, early 30s. And it was a, uh, it was a rather circuitous route to becoming a herbalist, but, but herbal medicine certainly wasn't familiar in my childhood for sure. And um, my, my parents are both sci scientists by training. Uh, my, my dad was a biology teacher and my mum had done chemistry at university and um, so uh, an interest in science and the natural world was always part of my life, right from a little kid. So we were always outside and we always went out with nets and wellies and buckets and we were always fishing things out of ponds and, and taking them home and looking under the microscope. My dad's a botanist and a zoologist, so there was always an interest in plants there. And my dad's a super keen gardener, or had been his whole life. So, um, so I was always around plants, but, I, uh, but the herb thing wasn't even in, on my radar at all, you know. Botany, zoology, chemistry, it sounded like you had a pretty good foundation for it, though. Yeah, and, and a lot of that, I think, just being absorbing by being around it. They certainly, I've got two brothers, and my, my, my other two brothers are not, are not so interested in the natural world. They've become more so as adults. But as a child, all of that was totally, totally my thing. So I loved being outside, and I loved looking under microscopes and and learning about things just kind of uh, organically, I suppose, by being around it. But my passion as a child was birds. So as a little kid, I was already by age six, I could tell you what the birds in the garden were and, and all of that. So my, uh, and plants were a bit slow for me, I think. So I was always appreciative of my dad's interest in plants, but, but I was after the active things, I suppose. And uh, so plants snuck up on me later in life, let's say that. Where did you grow up, David? Um, so I grew up, um, I was born in Southeast England, but grew up in the middle of England, the Midlands. So the, what was still at that stage, the industrial Midlands, which during my early childhood ceased to be the industrial Midlands as all the manufacturing disappeared. But um, I grew up in the middle of England, about as far from the sea as you can get in England, which isn't very far, but as a little kid, it seemed like a long way. I'd only see the sea twice a year. So, mm. so yeah, far from the sea. And, um, uh, and that's where I, we lived in the same house till I was about 10 or 11. And then my parents lived in the next house where I spent the rest of my into teen years and then before I left for university they lived in that house until 2016 uh, yes so um, didn't move around a lot as a little kid yeah so I like you grew up knowing nothing about herbal medicine nothing about natural medicine at all I was surprised after leaving home and and starting to study natural medicines how much I was actually surrounded by it in a sense as a kid, but wasn't even aware yeah. that it was a yeah. thing. I, I grew up in the Appalachian region of the U.S. There's a lot of folk medicine from there. My grandfather was a farmer who was a botanist and could name every plant there was, or at least that was in his life. I had no interest in it, didn't know anything about it. But I'm wondering if I was certainly surprised to learn about some of the roots of medicine from where I grew up. I'm wondering, now that you've left England and now that herbal medicine is such a focus of your life, if, if you realize that 
there was a lot of influence from the environment outside of your family home in herbal medicine now? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. Cause I think, um, England really represents a part of Europe that, that really abandoned all of that around about between the world wars, I would say. So I think, um, the living tradition with that is rather different to perhaps what you experienced. So like none of my family, none of my friends' family knew anything about herbal medicine as far as I know. And as I look back, it was clear they didn't. And, and that really is, is a, is a almost unique story in, in, in Europe. So if you go, particularly if you go to Eastern Europe, there's an unbroken living tradition. So you, not so much in the cities, but you go to any village and there are people who since time immemorial have known where to find the herbs and how to prepare them and how to apply them in life. And, and that, that tradition was a living tradition in England up until about the, the between the wars period. And then it kind of evaporated. Um, and so, so I, as I look back, I can't really touch any threads that I can see that, that were apparent in, in the world. And in fact, that's, that's the story of, of, um, of, uh, of, of the modern training in herbal medicine, because the, the herbal professional bodies in England, or really there was only one at the time, they, um, they recognized that this was dying out, that it had the thread had been broken and they set up the first training school in the seventies. So when I was a child, the first formal training was beginning in England, trying to pick up those threads and they actively spent time in a kind of ethnobotanical sense, going out and interviewing people from the generation before the last one, like the grandparents of the current generation, trying to find people who still had the threads of that knowledge. So they would go to Wales, they go to Ireland and Scotland and the more remote rural parts of England, trying to pick up these threads and trying to um, catch the tradition before it was lost. And then combining that with a modern kind of scientific understanding of herbs. So I think you know, your story of Appalachia, those threads have never been broken, you know, and obviously here on this continent, a First Nations history and then a settler history, um, adopting many of those traditions and herbs and learning and there's lots of dialogue and you look at the 19th century in North America, there's lots of dialogue and, and mutual respect as people learn those traditions and obviously settlers bringing European herbs at that time because it was a living tradition in England and Western Europe. So, so the threads for you were, were probably, as you're saying, very apparent as you look back, but in England for me, no, I would say not. And, um, uh, as I talk to colleagues of mine from, from England, I think, I think I, I hear the same thing. Most people have nothing they can touch in their life that relates to that. And, um, so I'm very grateful for that for that um, 1970s institutionalization of 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 the training because it kind of saved saved the last remnants of the thread before it was completely gone. You know? hmm. Yeah, it's great that they took the initiative to do that, and mm-hmm. I I know a lot of our traditions now that we teach and our herbal programs come from. Yeah. England and European medicines and First Nations medicines. So it's incredibly important to preserve that knowledge. You have, I guess, lived your life on islands. So you moved from England to Vancouver Island yeah. 
and now you are on a smaller island. Yeah. Where, where are you right now? I'm on Salt Spring. Yeah, apparently Vancouver Island wasn't enough island for me, it seems. So, um, <laughs> so yeah, I, I guess it's in my blood to be on an island. Although, to be also to be fair, as a little kid, I, I didn't have much sense being on the island because we literally would see the sea twice a year, once on summer holiday and once when we'd visit our grand, one, one set of grandparents who lived by the sea. So I didn't have much of a sea island sense growing up but yeah having there's something about islands it seems in my genes somewhere what brought you to canada um really the the, the opportunity to come and teach so i'd been i'd come to herbal medicine quite late uh, in my 30s having done lots of other things prior to that and i um i uh, began my training in the 90s 1990s uh, as a herbalist and then worked in England up until um, 2010 in various roles in herbal medicine. So I worked out of two practices and, and I, um, <clears throat> and I uh, taught part-time uh, on two different degree programs and I did some public education kind of courses around herbal medicine. <clears throat> and then um, really the connection for me and what brought me here was a colleague of ours who lives at Vancouver Island, Amanda Howe, who I'd known years ago in England as a, as a herbalist. And she, she came over to do a master's study in herbal medicine in, in England. And she came to work part-time out of one of the practices where I work because she knew the other members of that practice. So I got to know her then around about the year, I'm thinking 99, 2000, something like that. And I um, got to know her and... Um, and we stayed in contact because her English family were still in England and, and she would contact the practice where I was and ask me to do stuff for her family. Can you send such and such to my mum and dad or whatever? So, um, you know, one day I got a random email asking those typical kind of questions and also at the end of it said, do you know anybody who might fancy coming and teaching out here? And uh, a little light bulb went off in my head and I thought, I, I think I do actually. <laughs> and I, I kind of I know someone quite well <laughs> yeah, yeah and so I by um by that evening I had replied to her as I'd sort of talked myself down and then realized I couldn't that actually this really was a light bulb moment and I um and I reached out to her and said um uh, you know I will ask around but I think I would be quite interested in that because I for, I'd been like for over 10 years at that point working out of two practices and and um and i'd been wanting to do some more teaching and uh, had started to explore the possibility of going up to london for part of the week because i was about an hour and a half outside of london england and i and i was looking at some possibilities there nothing quite seemed to be a good fit and i didn't really want to commute to london i'd lived in london for almost 10 years previously in my 20s and i just didn't want to do that and then this came out of the blue. And um, so she put me in contact with another colleague of ours, James, and, and we started a dialogue. And, and, and that's really, that's where I'm here today. Yeah. Hmm. Now, I may be wrong about this, but most herbal programs in England, are they, they're taught at universities. Is that right? Wow. Yeah, this is a thing. So, so when, I, when I started my training in the 90s, there were there was one and then two degree courses and they were the first ever degree courses as far as i'm aware in the world teaching herbal medicine 
And um, so I, I was one of those first two years of that happening. And then um, uh, by the time I qualified and was a two or three years into practice, I think at the peak, there were six or even seven courses running out of different UK universities. And as I understand it today, there is now one left and then, oh, wow. and they're not taking any new intake. And, it, and it's been, it's been a complicated story, which I'm not sure I fully understand, but it's partly to do with uh, the changing funding regime in England. Um, so the politics around education has changed rather, and most universities are not considering complementary medicine courses to be big enough money earners. I think that's, that's probably the, the nub of it. So, so, so these days, it's, you know, that, that has almost disappeared. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Is the slack being picked up by smaller institutions? Uh, no. So this is the problem. And this is where, where I think this, this online age and, and, and so on perhaps has a, a unique opportunity because there really hasn't. And in fact, the, one of the key national bodies who initially set up in the 70s that private training school that, that trained to diploma level, and there wasn't a degree, and who then kind of um, did the dance with the universities and, and got everything approved for university level and then that mushroomed and now that has rather faded away. That same professional body is now panicking because it seems like there's no established training. So they have been busy putting together an online call and, and they're developing that. So, so um, as for bricks and mortar, there really isn't anything. I know in our formative years with our program, we spent, with our diploma program, we spent years getting it accredited by a UK university so that our, our students could matriculate into a, well, let's see, I think it was being being accredited at a master's level program. Mm -hmm. And literally years and years, we finally got it approved. And I think the month we got it approved, the university announced it was closing its program. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like, great. Yeah. So that was the end of that exploration for us. We had had enough. Yeah. Oh, I know it's kind of tragic, but it's, um, it's the changing, it's the winds of politics blowing through education, I think, where, um, universities have quite a big bottom line I suppose and they have to have you know lecture theatres with 300 people in so courses that are only attracting smaller cohorts probably not viable in a bricks and mortar setting but perhaps they are in an online setting you know this is the this is perhaps the, the opportunity here is to is to explore that. Speaking of that and speaking of your colleague Amanda Howe you two are col colleagues again now in yeah two online herbal programs through Pacific Rim College. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me a bit about those programs? Because I know you guys, we just launched them a few months ago. Yeah. You guys filmed nearly a year and, and worked very hard on those. That, that's right. It's been a, a, an amazing journey and a, a real learning curve for all it, it all involved. And um, I never imagined such a, a thing. And um, it's extraordinary. Yeah, so we've got we've got two programs. So, uh, and really, they're both aimed at public access course level. So the first one is a simpler set of uh, of, of courses that more for general public interest. So people can learn um, the basics of a of a limited set of herbs and how then 
they relate to herbal medicine and how they can be used for various common health, everyday home conditions. And during the, during the, the course, they would also learn then how to prepare them and how to apply them, how to put them together in formulas and that sort of thing. And very much for that home interest kind of level. And then we've got a, an expanded version of that, which then takes the knowledge further for those who want to um, take a more of a community herbalist role and perhaps take a position in a health food store and so that they get a, a, an expanded knowledge that allows them to, to advise people on, uh, on the shop floor about the, the herbs they might buy and, and the products they might choose. And um, so that's a more ex that expanded version of, of the, of the, um, of the shorter course. Yeah. Now you did that with eight other colleagues. What were you, what were the components specifically that you taught? Yeah. So for me, I, I, my remit was to talk about the practical application of the, of the herbs, what we call therapeutics. So in other words, how do you gather together the different strands of your knowledge and, and offer that to somebody who needs help. So for instance, we look at colds and flu and we look at um, eczema and we look at these common everyday things and what can people safely do at home. So the therapeutics course is really about putting it all together, things that they might have learned in other courses and how do we, how do we apply that to a real situation so that your, your materia medica knowledge, the knowledge of individual herbs, how do you then combine several of those together? Which herbs fit well together and at what proportions and this kind of thing. So we teach them that and we, we, we talk about the energetics of the herbs in another part of the course that somebody else teaches. So how do we apply that in that setting as well? in the actual um, application of the knowledge to a real person in a real situation. Yeah. You've always been a favorite in the classroom face-to-face -face with students. I'm wondering how that experience was for you filming mm. in front of a, with a film crew, sound crew, you had the work. So had you done anything like that before? Never. Well, no. So I did. No, I guess the answer is no, not as a, not in a teaching kind of sense. I once did here, I think it was like 2012, I did a short TV interview in relation to, to, to the work, uh, to being a herbalist and a little bit about PRC and so on. But that was my only time in front of a camera. Uh, so no, I came to it stone cold and not knowing whether I would freeze on the spot. And um, it was a slightly odd experience initially because... Um, because I'm used to having the to and fro with a group of people and seeing people's reactions and, and um, with the best will in the world, and, and, and it should be this way, the sound man is thinking about the sound levels and looking at the dials and the cameraman's looking at the monitor and looking at the, and looking at the peak levels on the meter and all this kind of stuff. So they're, they're paying more attention to the technical side of it. So I, I'm having to create an imaginary group in front of my eyes uh, to kind of... Uh, <laughs> get into the groove of doing it yeah so it was i initially found it a bit difficult but i think i think as time went on i i i managed to find a way to to make that come alive for me yeah mm -hmm. what is it like for you living you live on a smaller island now than vancouver island a little island called salt spring island which seems to be such an enclave for naturalists and artists and i would imagine you fit right in with your experience with herbal medicine and passion of herbal medicine what's it like for you there i see i i i love being here i couldn't imagine being anywhere else really now and um 
yeah, it's a very diverse, very creative island. Um, and, you know, diverse community, as you say, of artists and, and um, uh, uh, people with interest in the natural world. So, yeah, the friends I've made here, uh, they, they represent all of that. So I know people who are involved in, in various aspects of, of, the, of the life here. And it's a very rich community to be part of, lots of cross-pollination of ideas and inspiration. And there's lots of organic farming. And the, there's, um, there are people who are involved in, in um, uh, environmental concerns you know, around the world and all sorts of things. Yeah, so a very rich community. And... Um, yeah, very human kind of community. Um, I think I think that it's that kind of small is beautiful thing where everything's a bit interwoven. So people know people from all different strands of life, and 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 that weaves together nicely because then you, you you get you get fresh inspiration from different points of view. I like that. Yeah. Mm. It's such a bucolic little yeah. island and setting. I'm sure probably most people listening from Canada have at least heard of it. Probably most people outside of Canada have never heard of it, but just a, a tiny little island and one of what we call our Gulf Islands yes. and such a unique climate. There's vineyards, there's organic farms, as you mentioned, outdoor markets. It's such a beautiful place to be. I'm curious what sort of knowing it as I do from visiting there a lot, it's it's just filled with wildness. And I'm wondering what sort of medicines you're surrounded by on a daily basis. Yeah. Uh, I mean, as you say, it is full of, of wildness. And, and it's um, it's really got a long history uh, with the First Nations on this coast as well. So I, I gather that people didn't used to live here, but they would come here for sacred purposes and they would come here to harvest plants and to, ha uh, and to hunt and to fish as well. And so I'm right behind my house here. I've got big cedars and, you know, not, not too far away. There's a small First Nations reserve that has never been logged. So there are ancient trees in there. It's a very small one, but there are trees that are hundreds of years old in there. And so cedar is a powerful local medicine that's probably been used on this coast as a medicinal for, for I think these days they're saying like 15,000 years maybe. So I think that even wow. in the last 10 years, they've reframed the timeline. So I think it's about 15,000 years. And uh, that's a, a potent plant that's highly antiviral. Um, it's, it's what we call a depurative that helps to mobilize inflammatory patterns that are stuck, like in psoriasis or in joint disease, like in um, arthritis and so on. And um, so I've got things that are new to me like that. So this, the species of cedar we have out here is not native to Europe. So that, that's one of the joys of my life is to, is to see cedars every day because they have a kind of magical presence somewhat about them. And you go into a grove of trees. They're often in little groups, almost like in a little circle, having a conversation. And, and, I, and, I, and I love that. There's a power about them. They, they seem to have a friendly... Um, to and fro with humans because they've been treated respectfully for 15,000 years perhaps on this coast so that there um that has not been so true of course in the last 200 years but um but i still think that there's a there's a sort of energy that's available perhaps because of that um long res largely respectful history and then i've got other herbs locally Another local one that, that was somewhat familiar to me back home because it's grown as an ornamental is bearberry. So it's, um, 
it's a small shrubby um, ground hugging kind of plant that, that creates berries hence the name bear berries and bears love them and there are times of years when if you're living in a bear area which this is not but if you do you, you see the bears love the bearberry but that that's a beautiful urinary tract herb for urinary tract infections and a herb that i grew up um, uh, knowing from people's gardens and and then when i became began my herbal training it was a herb that i used probably from week one uh, in in my herbal training Although it's not native to Europe, it's familiar in, in European herbal medicine and we, we, we grow it, it's naturalized there and it's grown and harvested and used. So there's one that grows within a stone's throw of here as well, within, within the garden, I can find that. And, um, and then I've also got herbs that, that are naturalized here from settlers who brought common familiar things that I know from back home like chamomile or fever fuel. So, you know, all over the, the island's just full of herbal riches and you know, the, you can't go more than 100 yards without finding several medicinals that I use on a regular basis. Yeah. I know it's a tall order to ask this, but I'm wondering if you can narrow your your list of favorites down to one or two. Oh, man. Yeah. That, that, <laughs> yeah. Because that's like asking people to choose from amongst their children. Yeah. <laughs> I, I um, um off the record, let's say, for now, <laughs> today, let's say that I, um, well, Skullcap has always been a favorite of mine, uh, right, even before I began my herbal training, uh, in my early 30s, as I was picking up lots of herb books and starting to grow a few herbs and, uh, and uh, taking an interest like that, um, Skullcap's been a long favorite. So that really uh, is a... Um, is a wonderful nerve tonic and gentle sedative. It helps to stop busy, anxious thoughts. It's great, great herb for a time like this when there's this kind of collective anxiety all around the planet. And um, uh, I just love that herb. And it's a mint family herb. It's not a very aromatic one, um, but it's it's an exquisite looking plant. It's got lovely sort of pinky purpley flowers and, and um, quite a delicate looking plant, but very robust in character and a, a, a solid, um, it has solid characteristics as a nerve support to bolster you in troublesome times. Yeah. Have you, being on a small island now and surrounded by coast, have you taken to any of the aquatic zone plants? Um, yeah. Uh, so somewhat, yeah. Um, I find that slightly difficult, yeah. Um, so most of the aquatic plants I use are, if I use any, they tend to be freshwater plants and not sea, sea plants. And so kelp, for instance, is prolific around these coasts. And I think if I went back in time, 200 years and I was here, I would be using that a lot. Um, uh, and the reason that I don't these days, it, it, these are complex stories, but... Um, Kelp has a long tradition for thyroid conditions. And, um, and if we did go in a time capsule back 200 years, that would be, that would be one of the perfect herbs on this coast for, for low thyroid activity. So it seems to bring up thyroid activity. The problem is the modern low thyroid patient is almost always got an autoimmune story uh, and they're, they're not iodine deficient. And, and in fact, if you apply some of the traditional uh, iodine-rich herbs like kelp, 
to a patient with say Hashimoto's disease, which is the, the commonest kind of um, hypothyroid disorder we tend to see through clinic. Um, they will tend to react badly to that actually. And, and um, so although the historical herb books tend to imply that's the perfect choice, in the modern day it really isn't. And the reason why we're not iodine deficient anymore is because you know, for um, all modern Western countries tend to add iodine to flour and to baked goods. And so it's pretty impossible in, a, in an average Western diet to be iodine deficient anymore. And, uh, but that certainly wasn't true you know, if you go back 150, 200 years, then the average low thyroid patient, hypothyroid patient, would totally respond well to kelp. So yes, that's sorry, maybe a slightly complicated answer to what was a no. Uh, that works. Hearing you speak mm -hmm. just reminds me of the diversity of skills that a modern day herbalist has. Mm -hmm. You have to obviously have the textbook knowledge of the plants. Mm -hmm and their therapeutic actions yeah. you know them by a variety of names from their common names their latin names in some cases their their chinese names uh, also their ayurvedic names mm -hmm. you can identify them yeah. for the most part you know how to safely and, and sustainably harvest them you know how to then take those and turn them into medicines it, it, you really do have such an amazing diversity of of skills in your in your skill set which if any of those came more naturally to you and and which have you had to work harder towards yes in, interesting question so the the medicine making bit surprisingly came to me fairly easily and, and in fact even when i was a student i took a job at the training college where i studied to work in the dispensary, really partly to learn that skill to a greater level. So we used to have, we had a herb garden there and we would, we would, I wasn't involved with the growing and the harvesting so much, but because we had other, other people employed to do that, but we would, but I would take the raw materials and I would go out into the garden and talk to the people running the garden. And we would have discussions about what we needed and when was the right time and so on. But then I would take that raw material and, and then, make that into tinctures or make that into other preparations. So, so I, I think um, that came fairly easy to me. Um, in my herbalist life, I've done less growing than I'd like to. I've done some and I'm doing some now and I'd like to do more than I'm doing in the future. But that came fairly easy to me because prior to being a herbalist for, for several years, I, I worked self-employed with my own business as a landscaper. So the growing and the managing of plants came fairly easily to me. Um, I would say that the some of the science of it came less easily to me because when I was in high school, in England, high school diver, diverges quite early. So already at 14, 15, you were deciding, am I going to do sciences or am I going to do humanities? And so, so you're already leaving behind things. So I, I had a love for science. I, I was never particularly good at mathematics. And so my teachers advised me to go a humanities route, which I did. And I went and did a humanities degree or part of one and realized that was not a road I wanted to go down. So my, I'd left my science behind quite a long time. So when I came to be thinking of training in my 30s as a herbalist, I realized my 
my science knowledge needed a bit of shoring up. And that's what the college told me as well, because I, I talked to the college and they said, yeah, we think you need to do a bit of an access course type of thing with science to just to see if you've got a basic aptitude there at this level. So I did that. And actually I took like, took to it like a duck to water and my dad was really helpful to help me with that as well. And so by the time I came to college, those were the bits I was the most nervous about as I took it to a degree level of, of science. And in actual fact, most of that uh, came to me more easily than I thought. Um, but that would be the bit I would say was the hardest for me, was the, the mm -hmm. biochemistry and the phytochemistry and all of that. And, yeah. And does that, does that include the medical side of it? Because of course, you're not only learning the yeah. ins and outs and all the functions of the plants, but you have to learn the human body. Sure, sure. So that, that, um, that again, I, I, I think that came more easily to me because always at school, the biology, the human biology bit, I, I absolutely loved. And so even though I left that behind at, at 14, 15, I, I um, had always had a fascination with that and kind of kept that interest somewhat going. So no, I, I find that the human biology side of it, beyond the biochemistry, those bits I, I found not so hard to study. And, uh, and I love physiology. And today, there isn't a day that goes past in whatever class I'm teaching, probably, at, at school, then when I'm not bringing in physiology and how it relates to actual living human bodies. So, you know, if I'm teaching about a specific herb in Materia Medica, I will relate that to the workings of the human body. And I, I just found that, find that fascinating I, I love that area of study and as a practitioner physiology to me is a key anyway because really physiology is the, is the study of how the body works when it's healthy and so when things are going wrong you always need to have in mind well how does this this system in the body how how, how does this like to be operating and what does it need to do that so in my online course i make quite a point of, during the therapeutics of bringing in the physiology and saying you know in this area this system of the body really needs this from the diet and it really, really needs these components and it needs these other systems also to be supplying this and supplying that and, and so trying to tie it all together and, and i physiology for me is is so key not just in the classroom but but in the clinical setting I, when i'm talking to that patient i want to know you know what do i what do i need to do to get that healthy physiology back uh, because really the body is quite good at self-correcting most of the time it does it all the time every day it's self-correcting it's in always a constant dynamic balance but but when things have gone wrong we sometimes need to give it a nudge with our modalities you know with herbs with acupuncture whatever the modality is with conventional medicine to nudge things back into a healthy pattern and herbs are great at doing that i find yeah i'm just actually looking out of my studio window on my farm and i'm watching my baby goats run around and some chickens with them and it reminds me of how much we use herbs even with our animals here on the farm. And just last week we had some baby goats born and we had a, a whole basket full of herbs ready in case mom needed anything. And we gave her some ivy afterwards to help expel the placenta. Mm -hmm. And I often watch the animals on the farm and, and notice what they're choosing to eat. And it's quite interesting. I'm wondering if you have any experience with, with animals and herbal medicine. Very, very little, to be honest. Yeah, I, I have 
minimal. Um, so in, in my practice in England, I lived and practiced. One of the practices I worked at was in a tiny village where pretty much you knew everybody in the village and a rural community, lots of um, mixed farming going on around, lots of sheep, lots of um, sheep, um, lots of sheep and goats <laughs> and ducks and all sorts of things. But, um, and frequently we would get people into the practice asking, what can I do for my dog? What can I do for my horse and my cow? And, and the legalities of that in England are pretty strict. So I would say, I pretty much always referred them on to another local, um, a, a local vet who had done a herbal training. And I think um, as a result, I have not learned that side of, of application because mainly in England, it would have been illegal for me to even be seen to do anything around that. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's an area that fascinates me. And, and veterinary medicine fascinates me anyway, because each animal has its own f- quirks around its physiology and therefore some hurt yeah. some animals but are quite dangerous for others so um, i'm always quite um keen to to uh, say to people yeah I, I can help you a lot around what to use for your family and there's not a lot i can advise you to use for your dog or your cat because i'd hate to make a mistake and um, animal physiology is very variable yeah well fortunately there are a lot of people out there who are experts in it and yeah we always reach out to them when we need things if we can't figure it out we've we've spoken a bit about various traditions of herbal medicine from european to the first nations north american Uh, there's australian traditional chinese medicine ayurvedic medicine i'm wondering which of those you have felt most called to and inspired to learn about yeah interesting question because um because this, this is a burgeoning area anyway, that really herbal medicine is becoming a global medicine more than ever before. And it's been a long, like that for a long time now, but in this current generation, it, this is accelerating. So I, I um, personally feel drawn very much to Ayurvedic herbs and, um, and now living here to First Nations herbs. And that, that's the area where I feel the least skilled so I feel like I know quite a lot of Eastern North American herbs because those are the ones that tended to be taken back by uh, right. European settlers and, and then became established in, in European herbal medicine. But the West Coast herbs are somewhat of a mystery. Mm-hmm. So that is a fascinating, I would love to know more about that. And the, the, the really, um, the knowledge there is fairly obscure to me and I would love to explore that um, while I'm here. And, um, but, but, Currently, yeah, Ayurvedic herbs, and I use a lot of TCM herbs too. But I, I'm, I always feel slightly um, uh, out of my depth with TCM herbs because I don't know the modality that they come from and the energetic model of, of health and disease. So I feel that my use of them is, it must be fairly crude in relation right. to a Chinese medicine practitioner. I found that now i find it interesting reflecting back to when i was a student of chinese herbal medicine because most of my instructors were native our first native chinese yeah. uh, speaking yeah. and so in our classes mandarin would be mm-hmm. most frequently used and all of the herbs that we were learning had mandarin names and we would rarely learn the english yeah and so i've studied hundreds of herbs 
And it was really only after I graduated that I was able to look back and be like, wow, I struggled with the Mandarin and the concept because it was just a concept because it was just this strange name like Shangjiang or Boha. Mm. And it was only <laughs> much later that things really started to fall into place. I'm like, oh yeah, Shangjiang, that's just ginger. Boha, that's just mint. <laughs> but it wasn't really taught to me that way. So it, it added a whole nother dynamic complexity to it. Yeah, yeah. English, England has such a... I guess a a powerful and deeply rooted love, traditional love of plants. So many of the original plant hunters and explorers yeah. were sent out from England to travel the world and bring back these exotic, what were exotic plants at that time. And they were being sold for great value, extraordinary value. Yep. Hundreds of years ago, people were paying tens, if not hundreds of dollars for a single plant. Yeah. Yeah. Was that anything that you were exposed to at all yeah. in your time in England? I know there's some incredible gardens there that yeah. have some of the most extraordinary collections of plants in the world. Absolutely, yeah. No, totally. And especially because my dad was a botanist. So pretty much wherever we went on holiday, we would visit the local botanical gardens and my, and then, and I would um, see my dad in his element and I was just always exposed to that. Um, and, you know, we would sometimes get to London and I was an adult, I would go to London and go to Kew Gardens, and which is kind of like a global seed centre and all this kind of thing. And, um, yeah, so that's very much exposed to that. And, and you're right, the, the English have this... Um, uh, being an island race that would get on boats all around the world and bring wonders back and, and plants being a big part of that. So yeah, very much woven right back into my childhood, that fascination and, you know, lots of memories of being in hot houses with exotic tropical plants. Mm -hmm. You know, I never even left the British Isles till I was 16 and then only across the water to France. And I never really went beyond Europe until I was in my thirties. Uh, so, um, so, but I was familiar with all these exotic tropical wonders from the hot houses of all the, the botanical gardens, yeah, Edinburgh, and I think, London, and all over. Yeah. I think now it's just taken for granted that you can pretty much go to any botanical source and find whatever you're looking for. But even just a hundred, a hundred and fifty years ago, these explorers were risking their lives yeah. to to navigate, typically on foot. Yeah the the wildest geographical areas and climates and i'm reminded of david douglas who did a lot of exploring right where we are here who's who the douglas fir is named after mm -hmm. and I just read at some of the accounts of his journeys and his his adventures and they were just epic <sighs> really and then they would they would have to find a way when they found this plant material to then harvest it and keep it alive while they continued on this yeah. arduous expedition until they arrived back to the coast where they could ship it yeah. <laughs> for weeks and weeks and weeks back to England. And most of the things would die in the process. Yeah. It's, it's just extraordinary. I guess it's, yeah. it's little wonder why people would pay such money for some of these plants, but so much effort and passion went into that exploration. I'm just, I've always been fascinated by that. Totally. And, you know, there are so many great books about the plant hunters of the, 
of the 18th and 19th century and, and prior to that as well. Yeah, amazing. A, a really epic and heroic uh, people. Uh, yeah. Spe speaking of kind of inspirational things, I'm wondering what sort of who or what do you think were your biggest influences or inspirations and kind of solidifying for you your calling into herbal medicine? Yeah, good question. So um, I, th I think it w there, there were many strands to that. If I had to pick out, um, if I had to pick out a few individuals, um, so even before I knew there was such a thing as a formal training, um, the, there's a famous book that's still in print and has been in many different iterations over the years. Uh, by a guy called David Hoffman, who actually is an Englishman who trained and then moved out to California. And he wrote a book that's still influential to this day. And we use one of his books in our training courses at the college. And so that book was very, it was highly influential to him. And then there was another, another guy, another English guy um, uh, called Michael McIntyre. And he, he wrote several books, which I found in, in a local library which were very influential to me and I didn't know it, but he had been, um, you know, a, a, a leading light and, and still was when I was in my training. Uh, it's retired, but he had been like head of, you know, president of the professional body. And, and that book was very uh, influential to me. And then when I actually went into training, um, there were, um, you know, several t teachers who had a profound influence on me and, um, one of them had actually been um, him and his wife had set up that initial training school that I spoke about a while back in the interview who set up that training school in the 1970s. And he was actually a Dutchman. He, he had been a Dutch dairy farmer and he had moved over to England in the 1960s and set up a dairy farm. And he was also a herbalist. And so he, he would see human patients run a dairy farm. He knew how to use his herbs for the animals, um, like we were talking about earlier. But he, him and his wife um, also ran clinic for, for um, human patients as, a, as herbalists. And that he, he particularly was instrumental in setting up this school. And he was still the president of that school uh, when I was there training. And so I sat in class learning from him and from his wife and, and they, they'd had a lifetime of, of, of herbal knowledge and they taught David Hoffman and they taught other global herbal figures in the Western herbal tradition, like Kerry Bone and like Peter Conway. And, and, uh, they, and they taught Amanda Howes up the island as well. And John Chow Cabrera, another uh, uh, herbalist on Vancouver Island who's known worldwide. And so they, um, very uh, far-reaching uh, influence they've had and, and, and great favourites. Lots of good memories of, of knowing, getting, and the privilege to get to know them and learn from them. Mm -hmm. And so many of them are, as, as you've mentioned, are your colleagues now. Is, yes. it's, did, did Chanchal teach with you on the herbal program? Was she in the online program? She... she um, I, I don't think she did. She's, she's done okay. of the special courses that are also available, I think, through the college. Yeah, Not I know she does. She teaches some workshops at Pacific Rim College. Yeah. yeah. What sort of... You mentioned a few resources, some books that inspired you. I'm wondering for the budding herbalists out there, yeah. if you can think of 
or recommend any sort of resources beyond, as, as we're discussing here, our online herbal programs are incredible. The programs at Pacific Rim College are obviously incredible, but for someone who is just looking at dipping their toes in it, what sort of books or resources do you recommend? Sure. Um, so I think um, I would I would still recommend that David Toffman book, the, the original one, The Holistic Herbal, it's called. Okay. We use a more, a, a more um, technical uh, book that he wrote uh, latterly called Medical Herbalism. So that one uh, goes beyond what we would teach on the online course. But the, the Holistic Herbal, I think for the person who's just getting an interest, because it, it literally does what it says on the tin. It puts herbalism in, in the context of, of of community health and planetary health and and a respectful relationship with the planet, which I think is is such an important message and why I think herbal medicine is gaining so much traction in the modern day uh, as we feel this great disconnect from the planet and as people are crying out to to feel more connected. I think herbs are a great bridge in that area. And Mm -hmm. I recommend that book, The Holistic Herbal. And if you're interested in kind of family herb health, that there are lots of great books by a writer called Anne McIntyre, who's actually was was uh, the former wife of Michael McIntyre, who I mentioned earlier, and she's she's a great herbalist. She's she's expanded her Western knowledge and taken an Ayurvedic training many years ago, and and she writes books in both traditions and some books that combine both. So she has lots of publications in print, out of print. You can find them in secondhand stores. Uh, around uh, family health. So if you're interested in a, a book to, to open your eyes about what you can do at home that might encourage you to think about a course like ours online, that's a good book to, to whet your appetite, I'd say. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I can't remember the exact titles. So perhaps, I don't know if you have show notes. I, can, I will, I do, yes. Yeah. Oh. I can forward you some titles. Uh, that would be great. Yeah. Absolutely. Let's shift gears a bit. Yeah. I'm curious about some of the stories yeah. with herbal medicine that you might have to share. Sure, 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 sure. You pick the topic, whatever uh, incredible stories you can think of. I'm sure you have many. Okay, so yeah, I one of my favorite. I mean, one of my favorite areas to work in with herbal medicine is fertility. Actually, over the years, I've seen quite a lot of couples who are really just arriving at my door, not expecting very much. But still hoping to have a baby. So perhaps they're on. Perhaps the, the the woman involved is on the cusp of forty, and really they think you know the sands of time are nearly out, and, and this is last gasp. And you know I, I can think of several people over the years who've been in that kind of uh, bracket, and I can think of one individual um, who, who came to me uh, really with that story. She was forty-one, I think. She had, she had been to fertility specialists in the conventional world and had no joy there. And, um, and prior to coming to see me, she said, you know, I have contacted this new clinic, and, and, but I want to try the herbal route to see if that can help. And I don't think she really had that high an expectation. But, um, and I, and I, I said to her, okay, well, I've helped quite a lot of people in, in this area. So I can't, I haven't got a magic wand. If I had a magic wand, there are lots of things in the world would be different and you wouldn't be struggling for babies, but, but, um, I can't promise you anything then, but I have had lots of success. So, and I, and I said to her really, ideally in your situation, I, I need to see both of you and your, your husband as well. 
and and I need to see you I think usually for about 12 months because usually in 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 somebody who's 40 wanting to baby there's quite a lot of aspects to be thinking of and a lot of things that need tuning up to 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 really optimize fertility so much to my surprise she agreed to the 12 months because often when i say i usually say 12 months knowing that is my ideal but often people are saying oh that's way too long everybody's in such a hurry in our culture always all the time but i realized for her you know time crunch 12 months that puts her nearly at 42 at that stage and um she agrees to the year so i'm, I'm quite surprised by that and i'm very pleased because i know that usually it's going to take that that length of time to to really affect a change so we get going and I we look at everything and her husband comes in and they're both on board and I get them changing their diet and, and I look at their digestion and I get them absorbing better and get their digestion happier than it's been for years and, and so I know now we're, we're getting the nutrients in that they need to to really fire up the testes and the ovaries and, and, and get things happening and um, and I um, and obviously I'm looking at her cycle and getting that nice and regular and her cycle was pretty regular anyway, but it was starting to wobble like it often does at the end of the, the fertile years. So I, I was tuning that up and getting the cycle nice and predictable and, and, um, and they were both highly motivated. And, and in, often I find with highly motivated patients that has its pluses and minuses because people who are prepared to do anything, are often also uh, uh, perhaps over anxious about everything. And so quite early on in my journey with them, I, I realized actually this seems to me to perhaps be one of the major keys is actually to get them to relax a little bit and, and to, uh, to not be so obsessive about every single cycle and whether or not they were pregnant or not. And in my experience, um, that's not uncommon in our context, especially as people generally choose to have children a bit later. So often then fertility is declining and that's an issue. So, and obviously then for her, the pressure is on, time is running out. I, I get it. I get all of that. And I've seen that with many patients. So as, as we get to about, you know, in the first months, I'm saying, I, I would rather you didn't try for a baby at the moment because I don't think you're in the right place. And I think if you're, if you're very anxious in month one, it's not going to help. So I want you to just concentrate on these dietary changes. I want you to concentrate. Let's see how regular we can get your cycle. Let's, let's have a look at your sperm counts and see how they're improving. And we need to see several things improving as time rolls forward. And so they kind of agreed to do that. I still got the impression from her that every month she was kind of hoping, but um, um, but I, I, I got them to agree not to make active efforts to try for at least six months while we got everything tuned up, and uh, and then also I I, I I then started targeting some of my herbal medicine really about nervous system and about relaxation, and I got them to agree to schedule time off at the same time every month around mid-cycle, which is what I often do with, with couples with fertility issues, to really kind of bring the couple's focus in at that time in a different way. So instead of it being, oh, I'm fertile now, we have to try tonight, 
and and then there's a lot of pressure around that night or those couple of nights or whatever it is instead i want them to take some time off around mid-cycle to to do different things to you know perhaps take up a new interest and a new hobby that they both want to try and I, I often get people to go away together for a couple of days at that time of the month and so in other words I'm trying to reinforce a sense of relaxation around that time and a sense of joy and, and less of a sense of tightness and pressure so so that's why I got them to do and, and, and as the months went on they really started to get into that and every month they'd come back and tell me oh we did this this month or we, we went away to such and such and and they started to really get into into that and so as we get beyond six months and and now i'm up in the ante with the with the fertility enhancing things things that will really increase sperm counts things that will really increase a follicular development in the first half of the cycle and get the eggs to be better quality and 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 now i say okay well i think i think now i would see as you know now we're nearly we're getting now nearly nine months i say i think i think now's the time to begin trying so they try at nine months they try at 10 months they try at 11 months and and they at this stage you know the 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 female partner who i'm mostly seeing the wife she says to me well we're going to give it one more month and just to let you know we have signed up with this new fertility clinic and and um and, I, and I've seen this so many times that this happens, that the, as the person almost lets go of it, uh, then they get pregnant. And that's what happened in month 12, as they'd already been on the phone, as they'd already blocked booked their diary to make these visits and have these blood studies done and all the rest of it, she got, she got pregnant. And I think it, you know, that was partly the herbs, but it was partly also the, uh, the groundwork, the sort of, enhancing the digestion and the nutritional status the the um the enhancing of the hormonal environment and also the work with the nervous system so in other words a holistic view of all of the different features that can make it difficult for somebody with declining fertility to have a baby and uh, i don't think they could believe it but i kind of could you know, I wasn't expecting it. As I say, I can't pull rabbits out of hats, but I've just seen it happen enough times that as people fully relax, the opportunity then presents itself. And I think the stage was ready after 12 months. Enough things were tuned up for that to happen, and it did. So that's, that's an example of one of my favorite areas to work in fertility, just because I think, you know, um, people who have given up about having a family, when they finally get that little baby, it's... Uh, you know, I'm always in tears when I get the news just as much as they are at that stage. <laughs> hmm. How much holism is in a typical herbalist practice? Because I find that it is more than just herbal medicine that you're practicing, isn't it? Yes, I, I really think that's key. And it's something that we really try and foster in the online course. It's something we try and foster in, in our college classrooms as well. And I think it's key. And I think it's one of the, it just then slots nicely back into the unbroken thread of human history where, People have always used plants and people have always recognized that health isn't just about us as a species, it's about the whole as a species. It's about how we treat the planet, it's about how we treat our community and our neighbors and people of different races and all, all the rest of it. So it's, I think holism is essential to what we do. And, and um, 
And uh, uh, there, there are certainly different strands within Western herbal medicine, some with more of a science basis and some with more of a, an energy basis and so on. But across that spectrum, I think holism is in common. And, you know, much of what I, I'm aware we're doing with patients in clinic is, is about everything in that person's life. And, you know, from ha- the, way, the food choices they make, the product choices they make for using in their homes, the, the, the way they relate to their family and to their friends and to their community and, and, um, and actively fostering a more um, connected uh, relationship with the outdoors, which is super easy to do here because it's so beautiful. And that's why people come live out here because it, it, people are drawn to that. Anyway. So I think, um, you know, as a species, the, the human race is rather contracted away from the planet on which we stand, and, and we treat it a little bit like we're um, we're visiting alien species that just happen to have landed here, and we're plundering it for all it's worth, and then we'll move on. You know, that's pretty much how we're living on the planet. So, um, so I think people, whether they can put a name to that or not, they feel it. And, and they feel the kind of grief of that divorce from the planet. So I think um, finding ways to help people connect and respect the world around them uh, and, and seeing how that actually does impact their health as well as they feel at home on their home. Because this is our home, the planet, and we don't treat it like it is. You know? mm-hmm. Out the garbage in the, on the living room floor. That's how we treat our home, the planet. So, mm-hmm. so holism, I think, is essential is what we do. Yeah. For your online herbal programs, you and the other eight instructors compiled over a thousand pages ah. of information for a textbook. And I was fortunate enough to be able to be part of the, the editing team of that. And I was profoundly struck by the element of what you just spoke of in every chapter, respect for nature, the gratitude, the connection to the planet and to the spirit of the plants. And there's such, such consciousness of that, I find, with natural-based practitioners, holistic practitioners, herbal practitioners, and it's it just moves me i'm i'm so grateful that that level of care and and consciousness exists because we're i think we have all been brought up in the traditional or non-traditional allopathic medical medical system of the west where that connection has been severed long ago. They don't learn about, doctors don't learn about herbs. They don't learn about nutrition. Mm -hmm. Uh, Even though most of our pharmaceuticals have been derived from chemicals that come from plants, Mm -hmm. they dismiss those as being effective at all. And it's, so it's anyone who's considering, well, actually, I was gonna, let let me ask you, what you would say to anyone who is considering yeah. potentially a career in herbal medicine. Do you have any recommendations to them or mm-hmm. maybe someone just has a love for plants and they don't know where to go with it? Yeah. Do you have any suggestions? Yeah. So I think, I think, um, I think the first thing I would say is, um, is trust your intuitions. If you're drawn to plants, um, plants will take you on a journey, I think, because, Plants are longing for us to connect with them. Just and that's there, just like all aspects of the planet long 
for there to be harmony again. So I think trust your intuitions. If you feel drawn, my advice to you would be to grow something, the first thing, because that's a magic all of itself, to see a seed sprout and the little seed leaves to come, and for that little weak, fragile thing seemingly, with all that potency hidden inside, to then transplant that into the garden and then see it thrive then become a full adult plant that that's that's its own journey and that's very profound and if you've never done that i encourage you to do that and 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 i encourage you then to go beyond that especially because we're talking about herbal medicine is to why not grow medicinal herbs and start using them at home with your friends and family and and i think you know that that's something that in our culture we've kind of thrown away with our journey into rational materialism and, and the, the ascendancy of allopathic medicine which has wonders of course it does and i'm always saying that in class that we don't want to throw that away either but we also want we don't want to throw the, the tradition so having grown a herb having used it with your home in your home with your family um i think then you're developing a, a, a living relationship with a plant that's been part of human history since forever. So that wasn't a strange hippie thing to do. These days we're made to feel as if being a herbalist is a little bit hippie. It's actually just part of being a human being. And it always has been in every culture. So I think, um, you know, it's, it's a profound thing to do. So grow a plant, grow a medicinal plant, use it at home and get to know it. And I think then, Having, having done that, that will ignite or not any, any kind of latent calling you might have then to take it further. So I guess, you know, you asked me right at the beginning, what, what was my journey into herbal medicine, I suppose. And, you know, that's what gradually happened for me. I realized that, that there was a calling growing in me to come and do this. And, it, you know, healing is a vocation, it is. And, um, you know, whatever modality, there's a calling there. And um, so plants will, the very least doing that will do, will help you feel more connected into your world and, and more in touch with your roots as a human being, as a creature on a, on a living planet. And already that is profound in itself. David, I really enjoyed sharing this conversation with you and having you on the show. Anyone who is really moved or inspired to connect with you personally, I'm wondering if they have, if you have any any way for them to reach out to you and sure. maybe seek some of your expertise? Sure. Yeah. So um, I'm quite happy for people to contact me by email. So I'll, uh, I'll ask you Todd to put that in the show notes. They can do that. Yes. And yep. if they, um, if they're interested in the online course, uh, they, they should probably contact the, um, the head of the online course program. I'll, I'll put the links for all of that in the show notes and I'm very, although I, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, but I'm very happy to, to, to connect with people if they want to reach out to me by email. Yeah, for sure. Mm -hmm. And I know I'm not an unbiased observer of, or analyst of the online course, but from what I've seen of it, it's absolutely incredible. The footage is stunning. The teaching is so well done the curriculum highly crafted so i can't recommend the home herbalist and community herbalist online programs enough so i'll definitely put those in the show notes great thank you yeah i'm proud to be part of it and you know proud to be involved with people i know well and respect and um yeah it's, it's a wonderful thing i'm very privileged to be part of that 
yeah, well, this has been great fun. Do you have any parting words before we go? Maybe, uh, you know, we, you only hit on one favorite herb. Yeah. Let's, why don't you finish up with uh, another one of your favorite herbs, if you don't mind? Yeah, okay. So um, I would have to actually say cedar. So that was not, okay. if you'd asked me that 10 years ago, that would not have been a choice. But now living there with them literally within view as I look out the window and, and um, that's, a, that's a, a herb, a tree uh, that I that I absolutely adore and, and I go and sit with the cedars on a regular basis I've got certain favorites around the island and in other places Tofino out on the west coast and there are certain cedars that I feel like uh, have become friends almost only mm. so that, that's a herb I love it's a great antiviral it's a very sacred herb it's full of volatile oils lots of the plants that have volatile oils have long sacred traditions wherever they've grown in the world so I kind of feel that about it it's like it's like going into a big ancient cathedral it's like being it is a sacred place to sit sit in a grove of cedars and and um they're older and wiser than i am and i feel <laughs> i sit with them and it helps me to be still and to calm down and to say it's okay you know in this moment of madness on the planet when everything is uh, uh, worrying for everybody you know it's nice to feel that 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 solid connection and say it's okay and especially as it's a very potent antiviral herb now obviously we can't claim it's active against coronavirus but because nobody knows but um but um it, it, it's just a wonderful plant and I, I feel a very strong connection with that what part of the cedar do you typically use uh use the leaves the young leaves so we usually harvest them um during the early part of the summer when the the, the leaf growth is fresh and then we use the leaves and the twigs and they, we can distill essential oil from it. We can make tinctures out of it. It's very rich in essential oil. So we, we use a high alcohol tincture and, and you can make it as tea as well. And if you're going to do it as tea, you want fresh cedar leaves and other cedar species around the world are, are known to have medicinal properties as well. But, um, but yeah, this is a great favorite of mine. So I, I'm keenly looking uh, to harvest some of that anytime now. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge and expertise, experience. And I think we'll probably end up doing this again sometime. Great. So. Love to. Yeah, I've really enjoyed it. Thank you, Todd. Um, yeah, thank you, David. Yeah. yeah, and thanks for all you, you've... Um, you've achieved in, in, in setting up Pacific Ring College with, with James and, and getting, uh, making that into the success it is and, and launching the online program and making thing you've done. So I'm proud to be part of it. Uh, we're grateful to have you as part of it and, and many of the, uh, your colleagues who have come over from England, we have quite a few of you yeah. and you've been such a wonderful addition to our faculty. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Pacific Rim College Radio. If David Caldwell didn't leave you wanting to go sit in a grove of cedars, I don't know what will. If you want to learn more from David and many of the colleagues he spoke of in this episode, consider enrolling in any of the on-site or online herbal programs at Pacific Rim College. David's newest programs, the Home Herbalist and Community Herbalist programs at PacificRimCollege.online are arguably the finest online herbal programs available anywhere. 
Visit PacificRimCollege.com to learn about all our education opportunities. If you enjoyed this podcast, share it with your friends and family and give it a five-star rating on whatever podcast app you are using. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, hug a tree. Seriously, go and hug a tree.